From New York, this is Democracy Now. The Chinese people have every right to ask why does the U.S. talk at length about respecting sovereignty and territorial integrity on Ukraine while disrespecting China's sovereignty and territorial integrity on the Taiwan question? Why does the U.S. ask China not to provide weapons to Russia while it keeps selling arms to Taiwan? As the Chinese parliament unanimously votes to give Xi Jinping a third five-year term as president, Tensions continue to escalate between the United States and China, in part over Taiwan. At the brink of war in the Pacific? That's the headline of a new piece by historian Alfred McCoy. We'll speak with him. Then, progressive Democratic Congress member Barbara Lee was the sole vote against military action in the days after 9-11. Now she's running for the U.S. Senate. I didn't quit when I refused to give the president completely unlimited war powers after September 11th, and in the face of countless death threats, I was the only no vote. I didn't quit then, and I won't quit now. If elected, Congressmember Lee would be just the third black woman to serve in the Senate's 233-year history. We'll speak with her about President Biden's proposed $6.8 trillion budget that would increase military spending. She's introduced the People Over Pentagon Act to cut $100 billion from the military budget and reallocate funds to overlook priorities like health care and education. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's unveiled his $6.8 trillion budget proposal for the 2024 fiscal year. The plan would begin the process of trimming $3 trillion from the federal deficit over the next decade by raising taxes on wealthy individuals and corporations and allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Progressive groups praise the White House plan for investing in health care, housing and the environment while expanding free community college, early childhood education and child care. But Biden's budget also also includes a request for a record-shattering $886 billion in military spending. Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy has signaled Biden's budget will be dead on arrival on Capitol Hill. House Republicans have yet to unveil their own budget. Biden said Thursday he's prepared to negotiate with Speaker McCarthy at any time. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other leaders in Israel Thursday, where he called for an independent judiciary and for de-escalating tensions with Palestine, while reiterating the U.S.'s deep commitment to Israel's security. But the United States also remains firmly opposed to any acts that could trigger more insecurity, including settlement expansion and inflammatory rhetoric. And we're especially disturbed by violence by settlers against Palestinians. Secretary Austin also said he believed diplomacy was the best strategy when it comes to Iran and nuclear weapons. Israel's openly backed military action against Iran. Austin's visit comes against the backdrop of intensifying violence. Earlier today in the occupied West Bank, an Israeli settler shot dead a Palestinian man near an illegal settlement outside the city of Kalkilia. Separately, Israeli forces raided the town of Nilin near Ramallah overnight, arresting relatives of a Hamas gunman 
Lebanon and ordering the immediate destruction of his family's home. Palestinians have condemned such demolitions as collective punishment. At least 79 Palestinians have been killed so far this year by Israeli military forces. The U.N.'s humanitarian coordinator for Syria has condemned an airstrike by Israel on Aleppo International Airport earlier this week, which forced it to shut down, complicating humanitarian relief efforts as Syrians reel from last month's devastating earthquakes in the region. Here in the United States, a legislative push to end U.S. military interference in Syria through a war powers resolution was voted down Wednesday. The latest effort was led by Republican Congressman Matt Gates and supported by a bipartisan mix of progressive and far-right lawmakers. In Beijing, the Communist Party-controlled legislature confirmed Xi Jinping's historic third term as China's president. This comes amidst growing tension with the U.S., including over the issue of Taiwanese autonomy. We'll have more on this after headlines with historian Al McCoy. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, at least 36 civilians were killed overnight Wednesday in an attack blamed on rebels with the Allied Democratic Forces. The killings took place in two villages in part of the eastern DRC near the Ugandan border, where Congolese and Ugandan forces are fighting rebel groups. In Germany, eight people were killed and dozens more injured Thursday evening as a gunman opened fire on a Jehovah's Witness congregation in the city of Hamburg. Authorities say the shooter, who fatally turned the gun on himself after the massacre, was a former member of the group. This is the fourth known mass shooting in Germany since 2020. Here in the United States, the Gun Violence Archive has reported 105 mass shootings so far in 2023. In West Virginia, an empty coal train jumped its tracks and caught fire in the community of Sandstone Wednesday, injuring three workers and spilling diesel fuel into one of North America's oldest rivers. A day later, a Norfolk Southern freight train derailed in Alabama, 80 miles northeast of Birmingham. Local officials said no hazardous materials were involved in the crash. It was the third derailment of a Norfolk Southern train in the U.S. since February and came as Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw testified before the Senate's Environment and Public Works Committee. Shaw apologized for the derailment on February 3rd, which blanketed the town of East Palestine, Ohio, with a toxic brew of spilled chemicals and gases. But Shaw refused to commit to ending a profit maximization scheme known as precision scheduled railroading. Unions say the practice involves staff cuts, running fewer trains with larger loads and shortcuts on maintenance. Under questioning from Vermont, Senator Bernie Sanders, the Norfolk Southern CEO also refused to commit to granting workers seven paid sick days per year. Will you make that commitment right now to guarantee paid sick days to all of your workers? That's not a radical demand. It really is not. Will you make that commitment, sir? Senator, I share your focus on our employees. I will commit to continuing to discuss with them important quality of life issues. Here in New York, prosecutors have signaled they may soon bring criminal charges against former President Donald Trump for campaign finance violations and other crimes. On Thursday, The New York Times reported Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg invited Trump to testify next week before a grand jury that's been investigating a $130,000 hush money payment Trump sent to adult film actress Stormy Daniels through an intermediary. In 2018, Trump's former personal attorney and fixer Michael Cohn pleaded guilty to charges of tax evasion, bank fraud, and lying to Congress about the hush money payments. Cohen says Trump directed him to make them through a shell company shortly before the 2016 presidential election. 
On Capitol Hill, a spokesperson for Mitch McConnell says the Senate minority leader is recovering from a concussion and will remain in a hospital for observation and treatment after he fell and hit his head Wednesday evening. The 81-year-old Kentucky Republican sustained the injury at a dinner for the Senate Leadership Fund Super PAC at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Washington, D.C., formerly the Trump International Hotel. Arkansas Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has signed a law dropping a requirement that employers verify the age of children who apply to jobs. A spokesperson for Sanders told The Washington Post the provision was, quote, burdensome and obsolete. Arkansas law allows children as young as 14 to obtain work permits. Republican lawmakers in several other states, including Iowa and Minnesota, have recently advanced similar legislation. This comes after an investigation by The New York Times exposed the forced labor of unaccompanied need migrant children as young as 12 at factories across the United States. To see our interview with the report's author, Pulitzer Prize winner Donna Hannah-Dreyer, visit our website, democracynow.org. Here in New York, Uber and Lyft drivers have declared victory after city regulators granted a pay raise to drivers following a strike campaign. The fare raise by the Taxi and Limousine Commission announced Wednesday replaces another planned raise that was agreed to last year but blocked after a successful legal challenge by Uber. Last week, New York Taxi Workers Alliance Director Bharavi Desai testified to the New York Taxi and Limousine Commission. Every day that's passed, that is a million dollars that were collectively owed to this workforce, a workforce that has had to pay for every single penny of operating expenses. Uber and Lyft don't have to pay a dime. A workforce that works not only with economic risk, but also with great risk to their safety and to their life every single day. In more news from New York, Sheldon Thomas, a 35-year-old black man from Brooklyn who was wrongfully convicted of murder, has been exonerated and freed from prison after nearly 19 years behind bars. Thomas was only 17 when he was arrested and accused of killing a 14-year-old boy in 2004. Detectives on the case misled a witness into identifying Thomas using a photo of another person with the same name. When the botched identification was brought up in court, the judge said at the time there was still probable cause to arrest Thomas because the photo had enough of a resemblance. Thomas was sentenced to 25 years to life. His exoneration follows over two dozen others after new investigations were launched by the Brooklyn District Attorney's Conviction Review Unit. And in New Jersey, a monument honoring the abolitionist hero Harriet Tubman was unveiled in Newark Thursday, replacing a statue of Christopher Columbus that was removed in 2020 as racial justice protests erupted nationwide in response to the police murder of George Floyd. Washington Park has been renamed Harriet Tubman Square. Among the guests at yesterday's ceremony were rapper Queen Latifah, who's from Newark, and Tubman's great-great-great-grandniece, Michelle Jones-Galvin. Many call her an American heroine. In our family, we simply refer to her as Aunt Harriet. She is Harriet Tubman, greatest conductor of the Underground Railroad. Aunt Harriet said, I reasoned this out in my mind. There was one of two things I had a right to, liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other. And no man should take me alive. 
And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back at the brink of war in the Pacific, we'll speak with historian Alfred McCoy about escalating tensions between the United States and China. Stay with us. Oakland's Tune Yards. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The Chinese parliament has unanimously voted to give Xi Jinping a third five-year term as president. Today's vote comes just months after China's Communist Party formally re-elected Xi Jinping to the party's general secretary for another five years. This comes as tensions continue to escalate between the United States and China, in part over Taiwan. On Thursday, U.S. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines told senators China poses the most consequential threat to U.S. national security. In brief, the CCP represents both the leading and most consequential threat to U.S. national security and leadership globally, and its intelligence-specific ambitions and capabilities make it for us our most serious and consequential intelligence rival. During the past year, the threat has been additionally complicated by a deepening collaboration with Russia, which also remains an area, obviously, of intense focus for the intelligence community. When asked if the United States would defend Taiwan militarily, Haynes said, quote, I think it's clear to the Chinese what our position is based on the president's comments. She was referring to Biden's repeated remarks that the U.S. would defend Taiwan militarily if China attacked the territory. Last week, the Biden administration approved $619 million in high-tech arms sales to Taiwan, including new missiles for its F-16 fighter jets. China's new foreign minister, Qin Gang, recently condemned the U.S. arming of Taiwan. The Chinese people have every right to ask, why does the U.S. talk at length about respecting sovereignty and territorial integrity on Ukraine while disrespecting China's sovereignty and territorial integrity on the Taiwan question? Why does the U.S. ask China not to provide weapons to Russia while it keeps selling arms to Taiwan? To look more at U.S.-China relations and the rising tensions over Taiwan, we're joined by Alfred McCoy history professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His most recent book, 
is titled To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. His new piece for Tom Dispatch is headlined At the Brink of War in the Pacific. Professor McCoy, welcome back to Democracy Now! Well, let's put that question to you. Um, is the U.S. at the brink of war in the Pacific with China? We're—morning, <clears throat> Amy. We're edging ever closer to that brink. Yes, we are. Look, when— History teaches us one thing. As Barbara Tuckman said in her famous book, The Guns of August, referring to August of 1914, trying to explain how the great powers uh, fought a war that nobody wanted, World War I. And basically what she found was that the, by preparing for war, that the powers inclined themselves. They increased the probability that war would come. And from the, the very apex of power in both Beijing and Washington— all the way down the chain of command, both powers are preparing for war. Uh, the leaders are making statements, and their commanders are following in line with preparations for war. And that greatly increases the probability of conflict breaking out. Well, uh, Alfred McCoy, I wanted to ask you, in terms of this whole issue, and we're seeing it uh, portrayed <clears throat> repeatedly in the U.S. press as, as China as a rising aggressive power in the world— uh, now, I, I confess I have a lot of problems uh, understanding this when you look at the record. From what I can tell, the last three times that China's uh, military went outside of its borders were back in the 1950s and 60s. And there was Korea. Uh, there was a brief uh, war in 62 with India, uh, a border war. There was a 1979 border war with Vietnam that China participated in. Meanwhile, since that time, by my count, the United States invaded Grenada in 83, uh, in uh, 1990, Panama, in, 2000, in 1991, the first Gulf War, uh, in 1999, the attack, uh, the air war on Serbia, uh, in 2001, Afghanistan, in 2003, Iraq, uh, and um, uh, there's the, the Libya bombings, uh, the U.S. intervention in Syria. So how is China being portrayed by our media and by the Western powers as the aggressive power in the world these days? When the United States has been the dominant power in the world uh, for 75 years, uh, for the past 30 years, we've essentially been the world's sole superpower. So from that perspective, any challenge is a serious challenge. And China is the first power that's become capable of mounting that challenge. Uh, and in that, in that sort of er process of U.S. hegemony, the, the threat to Taiwan is serious. One of the keys to American global power has been what uh, the Chinese call the first island chain. We call it the Pacific littoral. Uh, at the start of the Cold War back in the 1950s, the United States had five mutual security agreements starting in Japan, going through South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines, and Australia. And that is the fulcrum of U.S. global power enabling the United States to defend one continent, North America, and dominate another, the vast continent of Eurasia. And so, apart from everything else, the loss of Taiwan would break that geopolitical chain that is the fulcrum for U.S. global defense and threaten to push the United States back to what's called <clears throat> the second island chain, essentially running from Japan through Guam and further south. And so, from a geopolitical pr perspective, China represents both, first of all, by its sheer size of its military, the second largest, 
the size of its economy, by many estimations now the world's largest, a, a major threat, the first real threat to U.S. global power in well, over 30 years. But hasn't the United States, to a large degree, uh, uh, basically helped the uh, the enormous economic development of China by all of the U.S. companies that made China the manufacturing center of the world, invested there, built their factories there, and used the cheap products of China uh, to uh, keep providing a, a, a better standard of living for people in the West? So is, isn't the U.S. In, in a sense responsible for in large degree for this economic rise of China? Well, first of all, the Chinese have done it themselves. <clears throat> but what the United States has done has admitted China as a full member of the global economy. Look, when the history of the American empire is written and scholars try to find some of the key decisions that Americans made, American leaders made, that doomed the U.S. empire to defeat, one of the things they're going to, I think, focus on is back in 2001, there was a bipartisan decision by leaders of both Republican and Democratic Party to admit China to the World Trade Organization. Now, this was essentially a, uh, an organization that mediated trade among comparable industrial powers. And for the first time, this enormous developing nation was admitted to the World Trade Organization as a full trading partner. And they then used it kind of like Pac-Man to just gobble up the world's industry. And now China is the world's premier industrial power with twice the industrial capacity of the United States, uh, larger than any other industrial power on the planet. <clears throat> and that's largely due to the admission of China to the World Trade Organization. At the time it was done, Washington, in the, a supreme act of imperial hubris, thought that China would play the global game by America's clearly written rules, all right? That they would become a nice, compliant, cuddly, big panda bear China, okay? Our nice little toy that would produce our toys for our economy at low-cost prices, and it clearly hadn't happened that way. China is a great power. Uh, it is the, arguably the world's uh, most powerful empire throughout history. Uh, and China, from its perspective, is simply recovering its rightful place as the leader of the world. So we wanted to address what's happened over the last few weeks with these extremely blunt statements of China. Uh, the Chinese President Xi directly accused the United States of suppressing China's development in what The Wall Street Journal described as a, quote, unusually blunt rebuke of U.S. policy. She said, Western countries, led by the U.S., have implemented all-round containment, encirclement and suppression against us, bringing unprecedentedly severe challenges challenges to our country's development. Xi's comments came just days after the Chinese foreign ministry issued a nearly 4,000-word report condemning U.S. foreign policy since the end of World War II. The Chinese foreign ministry's report began since becoming the world's most powerful country after the two world wars and the Cold War. The United States has acted more boldly to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, pursue, maintain, and abuse hegemony, advance subversion and infiltration, and willfully wage wars, bring harm to the international community. The Chinese foreign ministry went on to say about the U.S., quote, it has overstretched the concept of national security, abused export controls, and forced unilateral sanctions upon others. It's taken a selective approach to international law and rules, utilizing or discarding them as it sees fit, and has sought to impose rules that serve its own interests in the name of upholding a rules-based <coughs> international order. Um, so, 
there's a lot there. The new foreign minister, the foreign ministry statement, she himself now saying that they're going to increase their uh, military budget by something like 7 percent um, yep. this year. Talk about this change and um, how you see this playing out. Sure. Uh, we haven't seen rhetoric, anti-American rhetoric, coming from Beijing really since the early 1960s when Mao Zedong uh, became furious with Moscow because during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, China wanted Russia to launch nuclear strikes on the United States from its uh, uh, missile installations in Cuba. And that was one of the contributing factors, among many, but still one contributing factor to the final rupture between uh, China and, and Russia uh, that uh, caused the famous Sino-Soviet split. So, the, so we haven't seen rhetoric like this in uh, 60 years, okay? Uh, <clears throat> ever since uh, the United States recognized China in 1979 diplomatically, generally the rhetoric has been very polite, very circumscribed. So this is all part of the rising tensions over Taiwan. In many ways, when you, when you unpack most of those Chinese statements, what you find is what they're really talking about is the U.S. is challenging China's uh, claim to Taiwan as being an integral part of the Chinese state. Uh, and indeed, uh, President Biden, uh, in one of his four statements last year, in, one, in, in I think the, probably the most provocative statement, said that, China, that, that Taiwan alone should determine its independence. And that was a, a fundamental rupture on what has been known as the one China policy. When we recognized China diplomatically in 1979, it has been bipartisan U.S. policy under Republican and Democratic presidents, and you can go through every single one who said it. All of them were opposed to Taiwan independence. They said there's one China. The, the qualifier in that was that the United States did not want the People's Republic to resolve the issue by force. But the, the United States, uh, every American president since the recognition of China over 40 years ago, has been absolutely consistent. You know, Taiwan is a part of China. There is one China. And President Biden's statement that, that Taiwan should determine its own independence is a, a real rupture, a, a real break with that bipartisan foreign policy. And China has responded in kind. Last October at the 20th Party Congress, uh, Xi Jinping <clears throat> made a, a, a really a phenomenal statement. He said that the wheels are turning to reunify Taiwan with China. Uh, and, and what he was referring to was these dialectical forces, Marxian dialectical forces, that inevitably mean that Taiwan will become integrated with China. And as the political philosopher Hannah Arendt taught us, that when authoritarian states like China speak in terms of, of inevitability, that's when they're capable of waging, uh, 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 conducting unspeakable atrocities, mass murders, or plunging into to unwinnable wars. So, uh, you know, on both sides, we're seeing very sharp rhetoric that's part of that process of the, uh, preparing the United States and China for, for war over Taiwan. And, and I wanted to ask you, if such a war were to break out, I, I, I'm wondering your sense of uh, how the reaction in other parts of the world, especially the global south, in view of uh, the enormous expenditures that China has made in its Belt and Road Initiative in countries throughout Africa, Latin America, 
uh, India and other parts of the world, what would how would the, the global south respond to such a conflict? Well, first of all, it would depend on the, 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 the way the war broke out, okay? Um, there are a number of think tanks that have been wargaming a possible U.S.-China war over Taiwan. One scenario is that China would simply impose a customs blockade, saying that this is our sovereign territory and that uh, uh, nobody can sail directly to Taiwan. You have to call first by aircraft or by ship on China or some, some similar pronouncement and then ring the island uh, with ships and submarines and aircraft to, to block all communication. Now, if that were to happen, China could do that very quickly in a matter of hours. Um, and that would mean the United States, in order to break that blockade, would have to mobilize its fleets from Honolulu and Yokosuka in Japan and sail and attack the Chinese ships sailing in what they claim to be their own territorial waters. That would mean that the United States is attacking China. We would, under those circumstances, no matter what we'd say, to the world we would look like an aggressor, all right, that we're attacking Chinese ships in what is, by China's standard, indeed by international standards, China's territorial waters surrounding Taiwan. And, and so right from the start, in the global south, we would be seen to be an aggressor. We'd probably carry Europe with us under the NATO alliance. But beyond that, it would be very, very difficult, difficult diplomatically um, for the United States. Now, by contrast, if the other most extreme scenario is that China launches a lightning, massive, amphibious invasion across the Taiwan Strait. Um, China has uh, 2,900 aircraft. They have now the world's largest navy. They have ample capacity for such an operation. That capacity increases every day. You know. Now, in some scenarios, the, the Taiwan defense probably has about three or four days in it to kind of resist this attack. Uh, China has, People's Republic of China has 2,900 aircraft. Taiwan has about 470. So, you know, uh, the Chinese have basically got, uh, you know, four aircraft to lose to every one of Taiwan. Professor uh, so, McCoy, <clears throat> we have 30 seconds. So, so basically what would happen in a war like that, China, if, it, if, the, if the war went China's way, they would capture Taiwan before the United States main fleet could arrive from Honolulu. And in that case, the United States would again be an aggressor, would again look like we're attacking China. And we might face international condemnation for doing that. Alfred McCoy, history professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison. His most recent book is titled To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. We'll link to your piece at Tom Dispatch, headlined At the Brink of War in the Pacific. Next up. We speak with progressive Democratic Congress member Barbara Lee. She was the sole vote against military action in the days after 9-11. Now she's running for the U.S. Senate. Back in 30 seconds. Every light is on and every road is empty except Oh, baby, don't stay too late You know I hate to be alone And I'm alone Baby, won't you come on home There's a man standing on the corner And 
Won't you come on home, Jonah Retreating, here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. President Biden announced his proposed $6.8 trillion budget plan Wednesday that would increase military spending while also introducing new social programs, reducing future budget deficits, and reigniting debate in the divided Congress on raising the debt limit. This comes after our next guest, Democratic Congressmember Barbara Lee, co-chair of the Defense Spending Reduction Caucus, introduced the People Over Pentagon Act to cut $100 billion from the defense budget and reallocate funds to overlook priorities like health care and education. This week, Congressmember Lee welcomed the passage of legislation to repeal the 2002 and 1991 authorizations for the use of military force out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, tweeting they'd, quote, marked up a bill to finally repeal the Iraq War authorizations, a moment I've been working towards for 20 years. Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer said it's his hope to bring the legislation to a vote on the floor by early next month. It was September 14, 2001, three days after the 9-11 attacks, when Congress held a five-hour debate on whether to grant the president expansive powers to use military force in retaliation for the attacks, which had passed in the Senate by a vote of 98 to 0. Congressmember Barbara Lee, her voice trembling with emotion as she spoke from the House floor, was the sole Congressmember to vote no. The final vote, 420 to 1. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. As we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. That was 2001. Now Congressmember Lee is running for Senate. Uh, from California to fill the seat being vacated by longtime Senator Dianne Feinstein. I didn't quit when I refused to give the president completely unlimited war powers after September 11th and in the face of countless death threats. I was the only no vote. I didn't quit then and I won't quit now. Congressmember Lee is the third Democrat to run for Senator Feinstein's seat, along with Congressmembers Katie Porter of Orange County and Adam Schiff of Los Angeles. If elected, Lee would be just the third black woman to serve in the U.S. Senate's 233-year history, after Carol Mosley Braun and now Vice President Kamala Harris. For more, Congressmember Lee joins us now, member of the powerful House Appropriations Committee, former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, chair emeritus of the Progressive Caucus, and a member of the Steering and Policy Committee, the highest-ranking black woman appointed to House leadership. Congressmember Lee, welcome back to Democracy Now! This is the first time we're getting to talk to you since your announcement, why you want to run for the Senate, and how you would apply your views to what was just presented yesterday. Um, President Biden proposing the budget, increasing the weapons budget, but also talking about preserving Social Security. Well, th thank you so much. Nice being with you again, Amy. And uh, first of all, yes, I, I am running for the United States Senate and I intend to win this race. There's so many issues that have not been addressed in the Senate, uh, such as, and I'll just give you one, for example, you don't hear the debate around uh, lifting people out of poverty and inequality from uh, many senators at all. And, you know, in California, we have 20 million people living below the poverty line. And I've run into 
make sure that we have a voice that those people who are people and constituents who are marginalized know that they're being seen and knowing that I'm fighting for an economy that works for everyone, including them and food insecurity. You look at the climate crisis, you, you look at the housing crisis that we have in California and throughout the country. I have a lens that's unique. I'm a progressive black woman. I've, I've been able to not only um, fight and stand strong and take on even my party at times, but I've been able to negotiate uh, legislation and to get the job done in a way that uh, you see now with the repeal, for example, of the authorization to use military force. Amy, I've tried over and over and over again to get the Senate to take this up. I have passed the repeal of the Iraq authorization in the House several times. I went to Senator Kane and we started working together and it took a while. But finally, this week, we got the repeal out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on a bipartisan vote. President Biden issued a statement of administration policy that he would sign it. Uh, he said that when I got it off of the House floor last year. And so it takes time. It's persistence. But I intend to be that persistent in the Senate and to fill some of those gaps that are there. And Congress member, I wanted to ask you about your people over the Pentagon uh, Act uh, at a time when the United States is ramping up its military spending, billions being earmarked uh, for the war in Ukraine. Uh, why do you feel it's so essential to reduce the Pentagon budget and utilize that, uh, those funds uh, more for uh, services to the American people? Well, thank you for that question, because I didn't just start now in terms of taking on the Pentagon budget. Uh, you, you know that I worked for our beloved Congressman Ron Delms for 11 years. He chaired the House Armed Services Committee. We have been trying to reduce defense spending forever. And we're making some progress in terms of building support because so many members are afraid of touching the defense budget. But I just have to say, first of all, I don't vote for the National Defense Authorization Act because it's always been excessive. Secondly, a mere $100 billion cut doesn't even touch our national security, doesn't even touch what we need to do to help our troops. We need to invest more in supporting our troops. Many are on food stamps. Uh, thirdly, we need to make sure that our domestic priorities are intact and moving forward. And we have resources here that we need in our own country for food uh, uh, insecurity issues, for homelessness, for all the issues you know so well, the domestic priorities. So $100 billion won't even touch it. Let me tell you, uh, there's waste, fraud, and abuse, at least $150 billion that taxpayers that, uh, have provided to the Pentagon that just is scammed. Uh, we can't even get the Pentagon to audit, to be audited. It failed one audit. And so the taxpayers ought to be very concerned about how waste, fraud, and abuse is taking place in at the Pentagon through this budget. And to introduce a, an increase of $28 billion is unacceptable to me because we have the resources to enhance and make sure our national security is strong with the $858 billion now that's there. And in fact, we need to cut it by at least $100 billion. That's a minimum cut that we need. And could you talk about the the, uh, the president's uh, proposed bu uh, third budget uh uh, aside from the Pentagon spending uh, increase that you have criticized, what about other aspects of his budget appeal to you, even understanding that a lot of it will not get through uh, the Republican-controlled House? Well, I think aspects such as uh, making sure that those who uh, are wealthy pay their fair share, 
over 400000 a year. And I think what uh, the president has done is put forth a budget where he shows how to raise revenue, reduce the deficit that the Trump administration created as a result of the tax cuts for the wealthy. He's preserving Social Security and Medicare, making sure that, uh, and I'm on the committee on um, House, uh, the State and Foreign Operations Committee, which funds our development and diplomacy initiatives. He's um, provided for about an 11 percent increase because we've got to do more uh, around the world in terms of development and diplomacy as it relates to global health, women's health. So the budget, I think, uh, is reasonable. We're, we're drilling down on it now to see exactly uh, what it means for certain constituencies. But I think that, uh, it's, and I serve on the Budget Committee and the Appropriations Committee, and so we're going to fight to make sure that the resources of, of our country go directly to the American people because it's a budget for the people, and that's what we're saying. We're going to look at our funding priorities because the budget is a moral document. It shows and demonstrates where our values are, and this budget shows that uh, we're fighting for the people. I, again, oppose the defense spending portion of it because I think that uh, the Pentagon has enough resources. Our national security uh, is strong. Uh, this Pentagon budget, once again, is excessive. And I think we need to put more resources into our domestic budget because uh, people need to be able to live their lives in a way that uh, they deserve as Americans and need to be able to have economic security. Uh, so that they don't worry about the future for their children. Congressmember Barbara Lee, if you could talk about this day and age we're in when it comes to reproductive rights, uh, you not only bravely went to the floor to over 20 years ago to be the lone vote against military action after 9-11— but you also, in terms of bravery, came out and talked about, on a very different subject, what happened to you decades ago growing up in El Paso at a time when Roe v. Wade didn't exist, as it doesn't now, and what that meant in your own life in having an abortion um, in this country or having to leave this country to have one. And then talk about what it means to be, if you were to win, only the third black woman in U.S. Senate history. And, you know, uh, yes, it was very difficult for me to talk about having an abortion because like it should be now, my mother and I decided it was our own personal business. It was my personal decision. Uh, it's it's a person's right to make those uh, healthcare decisions. So I never talked about it. And then the stigma, of course. And uh, so it was something that um, I kept to myself. Uh, what happened was, yes, um, I went to uh, Juarez, Mexico, and it was a back alley. Uh, and I'll never forget that um, because I was terrified because it was illegal. This was way before Roe versus Wade. It was illegal in the United States, of course, in California. I was in Southern California then at um, San Fernando, in San Fernando, and it was illegal in Mexico. And so I, I knew that I could die because then Black women were dying from septic abortions uh, disproportionately to any other type uh, of the cause of death. And I knew that I could be put in jail because it was a criminal offense. And, and it was terrifying. I was one who survived, Amy. And, you know, it was a, a terrifying moment for me, for my, my mother, and so fast forward to today, when the Texas decisions and these restrictive laws came down, I, I felt compelled that finally I had to share my story so that people understood they had a member of Congress who saw them, who got it, who know that that experience and, and trying to fight 
to try to make sure that reproductive justice is available and reproductive freedom available for everyone. Because the fear now of being criminalized in these states, the fear of not being able to access abortion care and and what people need to make their own healthcare decisions is is traumatic. And so I decided to do that. And then as co-chair of the Pro-Choice Caucus, I have been fighting since day one to repeal, for example, the Hyde Amendment, which was a major step to get Democrats and Republicans to come together on. Because, you know, the Hyde Amendment denies access to abortion care for low-income women who are primarily women of color. So I introduced the EACH Act. No one thought we could get it done. Uh, But I've got close to 180 co-sponsors, which would repeal the Hyde Amendment. And then I've been able to keep it out of the appropriations bills for the last two years because that's where the Hyde Amendment uh, takes effect. So, you know, it's a it's a lifetime struggle, uh, Amy, and it's, you know, something that as a black woman, uh, I understand. And just transitioning to my comments about the Senate, you know, uh, the lens of a black woman has been missing. You mentioned how long it's been. That's since 1789. Only two African-American women serving a total of 10 years. And can you imagine uh, the perspective of black women uh and what it would do not only to strengthen and provide for more focus and uh, uh, living and providing for policies that would help the black community, communities of color, low-income communities, working men and women. This helps our own country because black women, when we lift up and crack these barriers and challenges, we're doing this not only for ourselves, but for everybody. We're doing it for everyone in this country, the LGBTQ community, black and brown communities, low-income communities, poor communities, working families. We do this. We help strengthen uh, our country to make liberty and justice for all real for everyone. And that lens, that perspective, my experience, uh, that's not in the Senate now. And uh, so I'm fighting like you would not believe to win this race. Uh, we're raising money at um Barbara Lee for CA Senate.com, uh, low donors, recurring donors, people who can commit to $5 a month, $10 a month. That's how we're going to win this. It's a people powered campaign. And I look forward to serving in the Senate to bring a perspective on every policy that's lacking and that's not there anymore. And Congressman, uh, uh, Congresswoman, I know you, you only have a, a, a very little time left, but I just wanted to ask you if you could briefly, in the same vein, talk about this uh, this uh, resolution that you introduced on International Women's Day with other uh, uh, women members of Congress uh, on a, a feminist foreign policy. Uh, what would a feminist foreign policy look like? Well, let me give you one example. I have legislation calling for women to be at the table when climate policies are being created, women in vulnerable communities are most impacted by, and we do, we have a climate crisis upon us. It is a crisis. And so women should be at the table on every single foreign policy issue, on every single climate issue. And so I believe highlighting this through my resolution gets the public aware of the fact that women are not at the table on so many issues uh, throughout the world. And so I'm talking about women in our own country, but also women everywhere in the world. And, and the climate crisis is an example. Women um, are most impacted, women and children, behind the climate crisis because of the work that they do in their villages and in their communities. Why shouldn't they be sitting there helping develop the strategies that are going to mitigate against uh, the planet burning at this point. 
Barbara Lee, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Um, Barbara Lee is Democratic Congress member from California, member of the House Appropriations Committee and ranking member of the Subcommittee on State and Foreign Operations, serves as co-chair of the Steering and Policy Committee, former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, chair emeritus of the Progressive Caucus, co-chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus Health Task Force, and co-chair of the Pro-Choice Caucus, also serves as chair of the task force and poverty and opportunity, now running for the U.S. Senate. Thank you so much for being with us. Nice being with you, Amy. Thank you. Well, we're going to end today's show in Texas, where five women are suing Texas after they were denied abortions, even as their pregnancies posed serious risk to their health and were non-viable. The Center for Reproductive Rights is bringing the lawsuit on behalf of women and two doctors. They hold a news conference Tuesday in Austin. We begin with Nancy Northup, president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights, who introduced Amanda Zorowski. First, Nancy Northup. The Supreme Court's unwarranted reversal of Roe v. Wade has resulted in a health care crisis in states across the nation, including here in the state of Texas. It is now dangerous to be pregnant in Texas. Doctors and hospitals are turning patients away, even those in medical emergencies. Patients are being denied necessary, life-saving obstetrical care. Why? Because abortion is a crime in Texas, punishable by up to 99 years in prison. What the law is forcing physicians to do is weigh these very real threats of criminal prosecution against the health and well-being of their patients. We filed this lawsuit last night to stop the unnecessary pain suffering, injury, and life-threatening complications caused by Texas's abortion ban. We filed this lawsuit so that patients will not be hindered, delayed, or denied necessary obstetrical care, including abortion care. This is the first lawsuit of its kind. It is the first lawsuit in which individual women have sued a state for the harm that they endured because abortion care has been criminalized in the wake of Roe's reversal. Five women have come forward to sue the state of Texas in this case. Amanda Zorowski, Lauren Miller, Lauren Hall, Anna Zagarian, and Ashley Brandt. Each of them each of them suffered severe complications during their pregnancies. These five women are joined in this lawsuit by two obstetricians, Dr. Damla Karzan and Dr. Judy Levinson, who can no longer practice medicine as they were trained because Texas abortion bans pose catastrophic risks to their liberty. What we are seeking is a ruling from the court that clearly permits doctors to provide a, patient, a pregnant patient with abortion care when in the doctor's good faith judgment and in consultation with the patient, the doctor determines that the patient has a physical emergent medical condition that poses a risk 
to their life or health. No one should be forced to wait until they are at death's door to receive health care. Such a ruling that we are seeking is the correct interpretation of Texas's abortion bans. It is also required under the Texas Constitution, which protects life, liberty, equality, and the right to be free from sex discrimination. These rights are guaranteed to every Texan, and they do not disappear because they are pregnant. Right now, abortion bans are exposing pregnant people to risks of death, illness, and injury, including the loss of fertility. Contrary to the stated purpose of furthering life, abortion bans are making it less likely that every family who wants to bring a child into the world will be able to do so and survive the experience. These women you will hear from today represent only the tip of the iceberg. This is the first lawsuit in the nation, but tragically, it is unlikely to be the last. This lawsuit, Zorowski versus Texas, seeks to rightfully return the life and death medical decisions to patients and their doctors and not leave them up to politicians and state officials. Now I would like to ask Amanda to come to the mic. Thank you. Hello, my name is Amanda Zorowski and I'm here to tell you a little bit about my experience with the Texas abortion bans. Thank you for being here. Indulge me for a moment and close your eyes. Picture someone you hold incredibly dear. Can you see them? Good. Now imagine someone telling you that you are going to lose that person in the very near future, but they can't tell you exactly when or how. And on top of that, there's a very high likelihood that you will get extremely sick, maybe even near death, as you wait for that person you love to die. Sounds like a pretty sick and twisted plot to a dystopian novel, but it's not. It's exactly what happened to me while pregnant in Texas. About six months ago, I was thrilled to be cruising through the second trimester of my very first pregnancy. I was carrying our daughter, Willow, who had finally blissfully been conceived after 18 months of grueling fertility treatment. My husband and I were beyond thrilled. Then, on a sunny August day, after I had just finished the invite list for the baby shower my sister was planning for me, everything changed. Some unexpected and curious symptoms arrived, and I contacted my obstetrician to be safe and was surprised when I was told to come in as soon as possible. After a brief examination, my husband and I received the harrowing news that I had dilated prematurely due to a condition known as cervical insufficiency. Soon after, my membranes ruptured and we were told by multiple doctors that the loss of our daughter was inevitable. I asked what could be done to ensure the respectful passing of our baby and what could protect me from a deadly infection now that my body was unprotected and vulnerable. My healthcare team was anguished as they explained there was nothing they could do because of Texas's anti-abortion laws, the latest of which, by the way, had taken effect two days 
after my water broke. It meant that even though we would, with complete certainty, lose Willow, my doctor could not intervene as long as her heart was beating or until I was sick enough for the ethics board at the hospital to consider my life at risk and permit the standard health care I needed at that point, an abortion. So even though I had lost all of my amniotic fluid, something an unborn child simply cannot survive without, we had to wait. I cannot adequately put into words the trauma and despair that comes with waiting to either lose your own life, your child's life, or both. For days, I was locked in this bizarre and avoidable hell. Would Willow's heart stop, or would I deteriorate to the brink of death? The answer arrived three very long days later. In a matter of minutes, I went from being physically healthy to developing sepsis, a condition in which bacteria in the blood develops into infection with the ability to kill in under an hour. I spent the next three days in the intensive care unit, surrounded by my family who booked last minute flights because they feared for my life. I spent another three days in the less critical unit of the hospital, all because I was denied access to reasonable health care due to Texas's new abortion bans. What I needed was an abortion, a standard medical procedure. An abortion would have prevented the unnecessary harm and suffering that I endured. Not only the psychological trauma that came with three days of waiting, but the physical harm my body suffered, the extent of which is still being determined. I needed an abortion to protect my life and to protect the lives of my future babies that I dream and hope I can still have someday. Two things I know for sure. The preventable harm inflicted on me will medically make it harder than it already was for me to get pregnant again. The barbaric restrictions our lawmakers have passed are having real-life implications on real people. I may have been one of the first who was affected by the overturning of Roe in Texas, but I'm certainly not the last. More people have been and will continue to be harmed until we do something about it. The people in the building behind me have the power to fix this, yet they've done nothing. In fact, they're currently trying to pass even more restrictive measures. So it's not just for me and for our Willow that I stand here before you today. It's for every pregnant person and for everyone who knows and loves a pregnant person. It is with and for all Texans who, like me, are scared and outraged at the thought of being pregnant in this state that I stand and fight. Thank you. Amanda Zarowski, one of five women suing Texas after they were denied abortions, even as their pregnancies posed serious risk to their health and were non-viable. Two doctors are also suing. The case was brought by the Center for Reproductive Rights. They held the news conference in Austin, Texas. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.